Okay, you're listening to the Green Feet Podcast, episode number one. Today's podcast is sponsored by Flyby Properties. If you're passing through Albuquerque, Flyby Properties supplies fully furnished rentals with your best interests in mind. They make the renting process simple and enjoyable. Don't wait to stay searching for where to live in Albuquerque. They promise their locations have everything you need. All of their locations will be found on the list of approved properties for federal travelers maintained by the U.S. Fire Administration. You can find Flyby Properties on Instagram or their website, flybytdy.com. So today we're going to go talk about the rich history of combat search and rescue or CSAR. So for our guests, United States Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Lewis Shiner Nolan. Shiner, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jaron. Thanks for having me on. So uh, we have a history. So you were actually uh, one of the first IPs that taught me how to fly the 60 back in 2015. So before by a quick Kirtland quick stop, we got the taxi out, break the aircraft, go back in. That's right. And I, that Kirtland quick stop, I didn't realize that was you. Yeah, that was, <laughs> <laughs> that's my claim to fame. Um, that's a whole podcast in and of itself, man. Yeah. We'll have to get a hold of Lieutenant Colonel Hearn here in the future, but, uh, <laughs> for sure. yeah, yeah. Uh, have me back on for that one. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, maybe it was the second year I was there, but it's really cool to see all you guys hitting flug and iPug now and doing cool stuff. Uh, see a lot of you guys at Nellis. So it's pretty rewarding to meet you guys again. Cool. Yeah, it's it's all, it's pretty cool. Yeah, like you said, it's pretty cool to see everyone going through. You coming up to the big dogs now, uh, becoming a DO and seeing everyone else just progress through their careers throughout the throughout the years because we're all starting to get pretty old, but <laughs> we'll yeah. keep it on there. So. Changing gears here, uh, Shiner flies the HH-60 Gulf Pavehawk and was a part of the team that received the McKay Trophy for their actions in Afghanistan in 2011. So our viewers that aren't familiar with that, the McKay Trophy is awarded yearly by the United States Air Force for the most meritorious flight of the year. So here's that citation from 2011. The cruise of Pedro 83 flight distinguished itself in combat search and rescue operations on April 23, 2011, while assigned to the 83rd Expeditionary Rescue Squadron, Bagab Air Base, Afghanistan. On this date, Pager 83 flight executed the daring rescue of two United States Army pilots down in enemy territory, east of Bagram during an infill. Pager 84 was struck by enemy fire, severely injuring the fight engineer. As Pager 84 returned to base for medical treatment, Pager 83 provided emergency close air support for pararescuemen on the ground, ultimately braving a hail of small arms fire to rescue a downed pilot. While low on fuel, damaged by enemy fire, and battling multiple aircraft emergencies, Pedro 83 remained on scene until Pedro 84 returned with a reconstituted crew. Pedro 84 made two attempts to recover the second pilot and their isolated pararescuement team, who were surrounded by insurgents, but was repelled by heavy enemy fire. Although Pedro 84 had been hit more than 10 times and two crew members received damage to their protective equipment, they remained overhead until Pedro 83 returned. Pager 83 flight made three approaches in the besieged landing zone, but were forced to go around after exchange of fire of fortified enemy within 100 meters. On the fourth attempt, Pager 83 was able to land and evacuate an Army soldier critically wounded during ground recovery attempts, while Pager 84 hoisted the second pilot and pararescue team successfully, ending a six hours of intense coalition rescue operations. The singularly distinctive accomplishments of the crews of Pager 83 flight reflect great credit upon themselves in the United States Air Force. <sighs> Man, we do about two hours of TE like training, and people are smoked after that. I can't even imagine what six hours felt like. What did you? What did you guys like? How how was that? So I think that's a that's a one of the remarkable points of that day is how long it took, and 
I think at that place in time, it's the only way that was possible to maintain six hours there because it was such a permissive environment outside of that terminal area. And if we look at missions, um, major combat option or permissive environments, there's, there's no way you can assume that risk to stay in the overhead and swap back and forth for six hours. Um, but it was it was pretty wild because we had moments it's an airplane flying <laughs> we had moments where uh we're in the thick of it and then we reconstitute get gas again uh get a different crew member and then you're basically the mission was to rescue the down pilots of the kiowa by a third of the mission, we had rescued the surviving co-pilot and those pararescue men, and then we had our two PJs surrounded for the rest of the day. And so just knowing those guys were pretty much isolated and surrounded, and the only thing keeping them protected was us, the A-10s, and the Apaches, and casualties as well. Um, just stayed lingered in the back of your mind the whole time so just this deep dread that the next time you turn around this ridge and try to contact guardian they're not going to come up comms because they've been rolled up or uh, killed fighting so that weighed heavily and then i think you just get inoculated to the danger and the risks And I've seen it in mountaineering also. The first time I saw a crevasse was terrifying. But then a week later, back at the same place, it felt like nothing. And your risk tolerance just shifts. And it can be inappropriate for it to shift this much because you can get nonchalant about what to a reasonable person would be a very dangerous thing. And it just becomes more commonplace. And that's why I think because that needs to be balanced in more of a 1G environment if they can maintain SA on the battle. Because what I learned here was that people are not going to be cowards in combat. They're going to be too brave, and they're going to be so brave, especially flying the aircraft we fly or attack weapons for the Apaches or the A-10s, that they're going to just keep taking more and more risks if it's not working to try something different to get our dudes out. And we need to reset and reappraise. And I think we were pretty lucky that day. Uh, mm. It was also permissive, like I said, outside of the terminal area. But it was pretty exhausting. And there was one moment, it's kind of that horrifying moment on a family car trip when you wake up and you're the only one awake in the car or something, right? Yeah. Um, but I remember one we set were hammering what we had just got shot out of the zone with we were single ship at the time and i look around and i realize like everybody's in a daze and i was in like a trance almost and this is hour four probably and i just had to like snap out of it and start jinking and get to some more complex terrain because i just expected to see uh some sort of missile or something just fired at us with us totally out to lunch briefly so it was hard to uh maintain that intensity and focus especially when there were down times 
So in terms of risk, because things ebbs and flows, it seems. So like you touched on a lot of the older guys. So like we'll get to the Vietnam uh, CSAR missions. Like those are probably the the most risk uh, CSARs that I've probably ever read about. But even Afghanistan, like the second heyday of rescue when you were flying in, um, seemed like you guys were flying missions every day, um, going into that high-risk, hot LZ environment. Um, whereas nowadays we're kind of at that very risk-averse uh, and not as many missions. So, uh, could you touch on like how the different mindsets have shifted over in the course sure. of your career in terms of risk with, uh, regards to your mission? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a important point. It's, I don't know if we're more risk averse now. It's that the mission set is completely different. And if you take battle damage in a non-permissive environment, like you, you become a new rescue basically, right? In Afghanistan back then, we could get gas at most 20 minutes from almost anywhere. And there were some instances where you needed aerial refueling to get you somewhere, but those were kind of rare. So the ability to get ammo and fuel and medical attention, we could have full bags of gas and then just dump to 15 minutes of usable gas. So we have a huge power margin going in. And... And then you could go get gas. You could even split the formation and keep an Apache as a wingman. But it was Kazavac, so casualty evacuation. There's typically no need to authenticate. You know who you're picking up. They're able to provide security for themselves in a lot of cases. And so many of the more complex, scarier risks that modern CSART poses for a non-permissive environment were solved. And so we were base we didn't have to do the search phase really we just had to do the rescue phase with combat but combat in this sense of small arms fire and rpg and i think there were extraordinary risks taken by pedro's There's 10 straight years right if you look at iraq and afghanistan um back from anaconda to 2011 when we were there during the surge when we had like 40,000 troops on the ground but the fact that it was mostly protected and then you just had to enter, take those risks then, there may have been an asymmetry there between the Army operations and Pedro as a CSAR asset used for the Kazavak, but we were very well suited with our uh, weapons to solve a lot of those problems and get in those LZs. But the guys down south or out west at Bastion or... Uh, Kandahar were, were getting like, you know, five to 10 missions a day in many cases. Uh, complex IED ambushes where they, they had to do a 200 foot hoist just so they wouldn't set off an IED. The mountains where we were, we had less constant missions and some of the operations we supported, we would have, you know, 12 missions in two days or something, but those were concentrated. But it seemed like when we would get a mission like this actual CSAR when like Kiowa went down, that it was a pretty challenging, austere environment as far as the altitude and the terrain and sometimes the weather. And so I think what helps with assuming a lot of that risk too is the proficiency you have in just multiple scramble launches every day, hard crews, and you're getting training through just doing the mission in a lot of cases. 
So um, I know it's shifted a decent bit of Afghanistan nowadays, um, but were you guys the only PR in town or was Army a part of that as well? So 2011, 2010, from what I remember, we were primary for CSAR in RC East and the 160th was there and Army Medevac was there with the, the Red Cross unarmed slick uh, Blackhawks. And they would be, uh, they would take very dangerous missions too. We would take them when there was a known threat in the zone usually, but we would switch every other day for Kazabak. We the Kazabak if the CSAR happened and pressed to that. And there are some instances where Chinooks were the, the only solution for the high altitude there. But in this case, with that mission in 2011, the rescue of PES 5.5, we had to have half cans of 50 cal and no floor armor in the cabin of the helicopter. We kept armor for the pilots because they had flight controls, right? Yeah. And everybody loses if that happens. But uh, Everyone get on the scale and weigh yourselves. Yeah, yeah right. And a lot of... Uh, bargaining for gear requirements from pararescue and mission equipment for the aviators and so we're just problem solving basically and and we'd have you know formation shift meetings or the whole deployed squadron and we'd talk about like hey speak up and let's solve how we can tie rescues and I think you can guess where most people go. Like, yeah, we'll take a little less because you want to do the mission, but you put your dudes at risk too if you can't provide them the safety gear they need to go do the mission. Like, had we had floor armor, that day would have been different for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, uh, I want to switch gears here, uh, get more to like the overall branching of CSAR. So we talk to dudes nowadays uh, just due to the coming off the surge like when you were in Afghanistan and then a lot of it being pretty slow or doing our primary job of maintaining that alert right so you have the two camps that like hey we should be doing primary like CSAR or hey we should probably be doing something else uh, like actually get it back to Kazbek, Medevac or even Light Attack was what some people will talk about Um, so kind of want to get into like our overarching history of starting back from World War II and like how we developed and like why CSAR that's maintaining that critical uh, skill set of CSAR assets is important um, to the community. If you want to talk through that, sure. Yeah, no, I think that's important to realize that we're probably the only military in the world that that has a sole function CSAR mission. There's other, you know, rotary wing assets that can do this stuff, but it's not their sole mission they practice, and they're not funded to train the way we are to do combat rescue and you know, it's like a unique privilege to be able to focus on rescuing single pilots or operators or troops behind enemy lines or that just get injured, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if the good thought experiment here is to look at how the Russians solved the Spetsnaz or the, uh, just calling it an airstrike on themselves, kind of. <laughs> yeah. And our mentality is 180 out from that, right? And Roger Locker's rescue in Vietnam is a, the perfect instance where General Voigt, I think, diverted 120 strike aircraft to just rescue Locker. 
uh, who was Oyster One Bravo, the the backseat in an F4, and so those two things that actually happened are pretty good contrasts with two of the largest militaries currently in the world, right? In how we um, project our force and the confidence we have that hopefully our single seat or dual seat or for guys like tug the four seat fast jet yeah, b1s no they can get pulled out right yeah. or they have a fighting chance um and if you look at like the gen one world war ii carriers like no air conditioning uh 120 degrees below decks and they're they're doing like limited strikes in the pacific just after pearl harbor so in early 1942 right at the equator there um going to like truck atoll and they would have they even then would fully divert all the strikers to just rescue a dude in the lagoon and get a float plane in there and then put like 10 guys on the wing if they could keep picking up down pilots and just taxi the float plane through the channel and then get uh, a sub or something to rescue those dudes and you can read diaries of japanese soldiers watching this just uh they just don't know what to think. Like it doesn't compute with, with their military values at the time. Mm. Um, it seems like a gross waste of, um, but you know, former president, first president Bush was rescued by a sub, um, when his Avenger was shot down and you can, there's a good, I think Bill Davis is the Navy pilot that wrote this, um, his own autobiography, but he's a Hellcat pilot and they would build their strike missions for like Leyte Gulf or Taiwan or wherever they were attacking off an entry and an exit that would put them over the lifeguard subs that were pre-positioned to just pick them up if they parachuted out. And they would just flow out with sick jets or pre-jet fighters in that day and be able to bail out or ditch and have a really high chance of getting rescued. Um, maybe some other time we can look at the stats here. I don't have them off the top of my head, but like many of those guys were rescued real time and brought back to their carriers almost immediately. And then repower power also um, is like critical to value of life and morale to keep flying. You know, uh, Colonel Osegger's paper, his ACSC paper talks about, um, most, mostly Vietnam, but, the basically the percentage of your chance of survival in the first like two hours once you get shot down is pretty high but everything after that in the next 72 hours is based on basically your survival ability and luck so right um, <laughs> I yeah, think it's, it's totally critical uh the the golden hour was to get people to a hospital who were wounded in the kazavak environment in afghanistan or iraq mm-hmm. but that that golden day or night to get an aviator or a downed uh, air crew or operator or whatever out of enemy territory is, is super critical. And it is remarkable when lockers thing goes slow. Um, at least six days, I think maybe for O'Grady, right? Mm. So maybe I got the conflict wrong there. Bosnia, Kosovo, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, Serbia. It's kind of all blend um, together. Yeah, <laughs> for some right. people. Huh. Very, uh, yeah, sparking pot. Um, so it's critical, and that's why on that McKay mission, 
still dark as we come in. I have PMBGs on and we turn around this ridge and I see the strobe just on a ridge. And I was like, this is like a movie. I can't believe this is happening. And it's like the way I think about it now, having lived through this is you, once you see your survivor or talk to him on the radio, it's like you've lost your, it's like you have an engagement ring and you've lost it on the beach and you just found it. Yeah. It's like, it yes. <laughs> drop it or something. Right. So you mm. have to like maintain possession once you see it. And it's so critical. Um, and that's why contingencies for calm, calm out stuff and signaling are so important because, you know, you can see them and then not see them or you can never see them, but talk to them. And yeah. Remaining just, padlocked. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And ocean stuff too. Right. There's never a worse feeling than <laughs> the back end calling <laughs> you just some tires open ocean that are not your PJs. Yeah. You're like, Hey guys, those aren't PJs. Those are tires. <laughs> That's yeah, oh, trash. Yeah. yeah. Oh no. Um, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah, we touched on world war two. So a lot of the thinking outside the box, um, it seems for rescues and then just using whatever they have. So like you talked about the buy up bands and the PBYs and then we, Korea is kind of the same thing. Um, a lot of the MASH helicopters flying around, but notably, like, CSAR really comes in its big heyday sure. in Vietnam. So um, right. So that's, like, the rise of the Jolly Green, so the H3s uh, and the 53s as well, uh, the Sandy A1s, and then what we got back today, the Crown call sign via the C-130s. So uh, like to talk about, I know you brought up Oyster 1 Bravo, so do you want to deep dive into that one? Sure, yeah, I'll hit on some cool points there. My last assignment, I was an AOC at USAFA, and I, I just happened to notice this painting, this aviation art painting on the wall, and it just said Oyster Flight. And I'm pretty sure it was Locker and his Frontier before they were shot down by MIG. And I thought it was really cool because it was such a, like, if you know the context, it's a very heavy painting. It's, it's pretty wild. And to get like that emotion out of it with without showing any of the action that followed that is pretty cool but take cadets there and i'd have and then right because i'm a csar guy it mm. was my in and Air then Force i'd bring them out and talk yeah. to him about <laughs> yeah right yeah uh, i'd bring them out and talk to him about how unique it is that our country you know devotes this much energy to csar and like what values that reflects beyond just helicopters being cool and a10s being cool right um but that mission they'd shot down three migs so far and they were with i think steve ritchie was part of that formation he steve ritchie's the guy that hurt the first air force the only air force base in vietnam heard locker on the radio after he'd been shot down mm. like 20 days later and had remembered his call sign and some people thought it was an American POW that was, um, uh, she's just like, yeah, we'll, we'll come get you. Right. And if you back that up 20 days, they were in an F4, they were engaging. I think they had just shot down a MIG. They were engaging another MIG. And then the North Vietnamese would, would launch a second GCI guided, uh, air, air fighter intercept once mm. an engagement had already started to try to catch you by surprise, like at a 90 degree angle or something to that extent. And so they got jumped basically. And I think hit with cannon fire and 
notably the front seater lockers front seater had told him a few days before like he he'd never be captured <laughs> because he knew too much about probably early stealth stuff or um too many secrets and so with one engine exploded and lockers canopy like blistered he you know told the front seater you know out man and, and so locker ejected first and i think you have to in the back anyways but mm. he never saw the front seat leave the jet maybe it did um but i think the story goes that he wrote it in uh premeditatedly and then locker survived 20 days uh got on the radio he'd lost like 30 pounds Jeez. and a four flight just ad hoc overhead hears him and then they scramble uh and I've met him, Colonel Stovall. He may be a general, um, General Stovall. And he's flying an MH-53. And they press in from a loiter just on the Laos border with North Vietnam. And this is one of the few times that uh, Crown or King pressed in with him, the HC-130, hmm. to provide aerial refueling and C-2 for him as they press in. They went in with Sky Raiders. And uh, Stovall describes it as a MiG a MiG-17, I think, and he said he remembered seeing the Sikorsky test pilot footage of them barrel rolling the 53. <laughs> yeah, I could do and that. And had heard that test pilot talk about if you keep it just symmetrically G'd for the whole roll, you won't twist it. <laughs> and so yeah. that's what he did. He executed a full barrel roll to try to break the MiG's lock on a, a slow-flying helicopter and one of the Sky Raider guys was a former F4 guy, and they chased it off, and they had to egress. And it turns out Locker was five miles from a MiG airfield, and he's 20 miles from Hanoi, the most heavily guarded IADs on Earth right then. And so then the next day, General Voigt, the Air War Commander, this is, uh, I think, linebacker, not linebacker two, but linebacker one, and 1972. And so they roll in port the rescue of locker and so they just like you know destroy everything around and suppress that mig airfield and unlike bat 21 which is a fairly tragic story even though he was rescued because so many assets were lost trying to pull him out in this case nobody was lost and they got locker out and they got him to the o club in thailand that night and there's a good picture of that and uh What's cool, too, is he went on to pilot training after that and became an F-4 pilot, F-16 instructor pilot, and he was one of the first uh, leadership guys with the stealth fighter, the F-117. Served 30 years or something. And so you can see, like, personally, he had a huge benefit from being rescued, right? He wasn't captured or killed. (laughs) But societally, I can tell that story now, 30 years later, whatever, and it's an awesome story, and it you know, gets me pumped up to go full by risk. Yeah, because low, prob- low probability but super high consequence mission is frustrating, certainly right now, because you're, we're not getting reps like you would with a pure Casavac mission, but hmm. it's so important. And to like think that a C model guys haven't done their job since 99 or something because they haven't shot down anything air to air since then. Well, I think that's a totally the wrong way to look at it. You know, they've mm. done their job because we've deterred anyone from even like challenging us air to air. Yeah. And if if we can continue to project CSAR in a way that is 
you know, present and capable, like we're doing our mission. And that's what, you know, being an adult is, right, is you realize, like, it's not maybe going to be as glamorous as you thought, but it turns out it may be even more important than that would be. Yeah, because like, a lot of people you hear, uh, yeah, a lot of the, yeah, like, hey, I want to do the mission because, like, you hit on, everyone's going to want to go out there, do the mission. Like, we're all, we all signed up for this, right? So we all want to do that mission. Um, but if you think about it, like you're saying, that person who's getting shot down is probably the worst day in their life. Um, so they didn't, they go out there expecting to get shot down, probably broken leg, broken back, whatever, evading an enemy that either wants to capture or kill them. So right. it's, having that mindset like you're hitting on is very important for our community to just keep training to be the best and get at those guys in there within that, that two hour period or whatever actually it is the from Colonel Osaka's paper. Uh, right. Of to get into that guy and ultimately not circling at the IP for an hour. But Right. And that's why, you know, we train to our standards, but we we have all these audible plans we can we can run when we get there and often just pure surprise with that golden hour or that that first night however you want to look at it or if you can bet them down and sneak in right but it's critical to to not loiter if you will yeah which which we um somehow got our pjs out of there with six hours overhead um which was just too it was just i mean we were taking rounds five miles from the terminal area by the end of the day we got a shot through the floor five miles from where the Jays were and Phil and I just looked at each other and shook our heads like laughing and Gonzo and back is like, yeah, I went through my knee pad <laughs> and into the ceiling, but I think it's okay. <laughs> it did and, hit me. And by then we were so, um, we were kind of inoculated. To yeah. We were you like, okay, it? cool. Well, let's press. Yeah. Um, she's still flying. So, Walker's career after his rescue and you look at um rudy's career after our the his rescue pest 55 rescue he went on to fly apaches and i think fought isis and you know that's his personal life and all that too so pretty cool to see that outcome as well cool yeah because that oyster one bravo seems to be like one of the rescues that went really well like you're saying um i know there's a couple of rescues like you hit up the bat uh bat two one uh bat two one rescue and then also streetcar 304 is another book i read so the navy a7 pilot that goes down where he goes down his wingman tries to stay overhead fax stays overhead they they don't want to leave the guy because like you're saying we care to get our guys back that's like our our promise like you get shut down we'll get you out um and then but streetcar basically went down in the middle of a f entire north vietnamese division so the ada was pretty thick I don't, so, so he's in the north korean division yeah, there. yeah so he there. basically gets, so he goes in does his first gun run because this is his first flight right so um first flight of vietnam off the carrier yeah. and goes to do a, a gun a, drop his uh, bombs on this target from the nail on the fact that's on station. So Willie Pete's the location. Uh, he drops his bombs down. He's like, and then facts like, Hey, streetcar, I got another one for you. And then it's his first mission. And it's kind of like a no, no to do a second bomb run in the same area. So he's just like, I don't care. I'm not, I'm not a coward. Like 
let's go, right? Like that Vietnam era, like pilot mentality, right. like that Chuck Yeager mentality, like let's do it. Uh, so he goes in, gets lit, like drops his bombs, starts climbing 2,000, 3,000, takes that 23 millimeter through the right wing and then punches out. Um, then instantly starts evading in the middle of this North Vietnamese division. So the problem with that <laughs> is you got to bring Jolly and Sandy in, and then there's just tons of ADA everywhere. So first guy comes in, first Sandy f- comes in, and um, trying to get streetcar to find his location. And then our normal way, day signal device, pop your smoke. <laughs> oh, <laughs> streetcar no. 304 is like, no, I'm not going to pop my smoke because I'm surrounded by a division of North Vietnamese soldiers and they will kill me. So Sandy's just like, copy, I'm inbound. Like, so he just flies over streetcar's position, visually identifies him, and then finds him. Um, the problem is he's like, I got him, but I want to make sure. And he flies back over. Um, so his, I think his wingman comes down and he gets shot down. <laughs> so... All these Sandys are getting shot down just because they're just going in to get the streetcar. And eventually, after three days of F4s, F105s coming in, just cluster bombing, carpet bombing all these ADA positions, they finally uh, get streetcar out of there. Um, but one of the Sandys ultimately gets captured just due to the, the luck of it. But right. it's, it's just one of those missions that is crazy. Like these dudes it gets to the point where like you said they just want to get the guy out of there so they just accept the risk it ultimately like, sometimes gets right. shot down but sure this different world right i've to be the jolly reunion at hurlbert area every year and i i got to go to one of those and hear these guys talk about it and i mean it is just crazy like they do a high ship low ship and they'd say something like well the low ship burned it in huge fireball so, like, no need to even look for survivors. So then we swapped to the low block and pressed in or something like that. And yeah. It's, it's just, it's a different world, right? Jeez. But when you think of Sea Star World War II, I mean, that's an existential war for Western civilization in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. And we're certainly our country in some ways, and we're still concerned about pre-positioning subs to grab single pilots out and then... In Vietnam, uh, the attrition's huge, right? And you're losing jets every day. But then you're still devoting all these jets. And I think that uh, team, we operate together. And even if you're alone and unafraid, somebody else will come to get you out. And when you look at, like, the the poor Jordanian F-16 pilot who tragically was executed, murdered by ISIS, right? And the just the effect that has even just thinking about it now, right, is terrible. Yeah. But yeah. The strategic value of having that not happen, right, by being able to get, you know, the Russians solve that problem with a JDAM, right? But we try to solve it by <laughs> full team effort to get you out of there, right? Yeah. And then that tragedy doesn't happen, and there's huge societal value to that too, because you don't have to disproportionately respond emotionally to that uh, uh, policy wise, right? And some, you know, go on, keep keep fighting. Yeah, Blade uh, is Blade Five One um, is that Jordanian pilot? 
Um, pretty terrible story, but it's one of those things. Like I, I imagine people were saying, like, hey, we can't, because what was it, a six-hour flight from where PR assets were to where he went down near, uh, was it Raqqa? Um, I, I guarantee there was people at the level, lower levels being like, hey, I can't maintain an alert for the entire AOR here like I needed before to central Iraq or wherever. And it was probably so low on people's um, radar um, just because we kind of got that almost invincibility mentality, I would say, because right. there had been a lot of shoot downs since, like Afghanistan said, yeah, we had a couple things, like you're, we talk about the, like your save and a couple of PR missions, but ultimately it's been pretty low. It's definitely not like Vietnam where it was every day. So, um, right. I think that's one thing people need to be cognizant of, of kind of out of that it. tragedy. Right. I think it we. Yeah. sorry, I spoke over you again. No, you're fine. Uh, just uh, basically, uh, the cognizant of like leading up the chain and trying to be, keep mind, like, does this make sense? Like, am I actually going to be able to get there? within the proper amount of time to make to save this dude and not get him burned in a cage, essentially, which sure. is, it was a huge slap in the face, I know, to the rescue community. At least that's how I seen it when it happened. It is. I think if, if we can pull ourselves out of that a little, you, there's reasons why it might be inappropriate to be for deployed there though. Yeah. Um, maybe there's not right. And maybe that, puts that in everybody's sights again and just reemphasizes how critical that mission set is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the two Chinook shoot-downs in Afghanistan to realize how dangerous the mission is we're doing and how lucky we are that that's not happening more often. It's, it's another instance where you reappraise what you're doing and make sure it makes sense safety-wise. Mm. And then if you have good data, you're like, well, single-engine jets, alone and unafraid. Let's, let's see if we can shift some stuff around here maybe, right? Mm. Yeah. But moving on to uh, – let's uh, change gears a little bit to thinking like the future – uh, of CSAR essentially. So we've gone through pretty much World War II, Vietnam, uh, Afghanistan, like the heyday. And now we're kind of this back to this lull between um, fighting the war of ISIS and kind of like the next thing. So uh, what is your uh, kind of a opinion on like where we should be setting our mindset towards uh, focusing PR cause for the future? Yeah, I mean, I think we of course follow orders and do you know what we're directed to do but it's it's important that you advocate for your community because you're the SME for your community and you know have the best ideas certainly like sacks white papers and stuff of like possible many possible futures right yeah and i think one really cool idea is the high low mix um and you could think about that for strike is like an at6 or a super and then or whatever but for CSAR maybe that looks something like a Raider a very fast but vertical lift capable helicopter and then uh, something like the CRH for uh, more permissive environments yeah because 
I know we've hit on the everything's about money. Um, even other countries don't have the money, but so we're very limited in that regard. But yeah, I know that idea of having the mixed fleet is a very popular one for especially the S ninety seven being that very fast single, basically single um, F sixteen guy to a noun. And then we we almost had it a couple of years ago, but that forty seven um, <laughs> this the Caesar X, but um, the whiskey the whiskey will do just fine. But for that. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm optimistic because our golfs are super tired, right? They yeah, they're bad. The, the CRH is brand new. It's going to be awesome. And I'm, I'm optimistic for that. I'm excited to field it. I think if, like, what's the best idea for the future, like 10, 20-year outlook kind of thing, that high-low mix is, a, is one of a few good ideas there. And then... You know, I just think integrating is really important because it's great. We have the soul set mission for the, the Payback for CSAR. But it's important to remember that, you know, there's other assets out there too. So like integration and communication, knowing what assets you have available, where they are, um, whether it's ships or Ospreys or maybe you can spur right on F-35 VTOL Marine Bird now, right? Yeah. Pick up your wingman. Yeah. Um, something like that right? about it <laughs> right just uh be creative and solve the problem kind of thing i don't um i think uavs are like a great solution for like the blade 5.1 situation if you could send a very fast uav that you know if the wrong people get on it that's fine now you have a prisoner <laughs> yeah they shoot it down that's okay because it yeah, was a drone yeah it's expensive but at least no humans are being risked now to get somebody in the middle of that NBA division metaphorically or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the drone thing's interesting cause, um, we like to, I know like Elon Musk said that the fighters, fighter pilots are pretty much over and they're getting replaced by drones and they got really upset about that. And then I've seen the, the, uh, the, some civilian company in California has that, I think what you're probably alluding at this drone that flies out and the dude just kind of hops in and flies away. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Like, I want the job security of not being replaced by a drone, but if we can basically <laughs> do it without me having to get into a knife fight with a dishka and some off foreign land, that would probably be best for everyone. <laughs> but um, yeah, maybe in 20 years or so, but I don't think we're quite there yet. We need to figure out our, our whiskeys first before we can for sure to that solution. <laughs> yeah. But. You got to figure out iPug first, right? Yeah, we're on our way. We're we're halfway. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, no. what we're doing, how we're doing it, why we're doing it. Common mistakes, structural fixes. There. That's nice. That's what I'm gonna shout out to Lecce for that. The hand <laughs> roll. So, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much where I'm out of that. But cool. Um, sweet. So, kind of want to get your opinion on that because. Uh, yeah, I keep bringing up Colonel Osager, but he's kind of like been a pretty big influence on my career. Um, what is your opinion on the the whole developing into more standoff munitions for rescue? So we have the 50 cals, we have the Gautus, uh, the miniguns, um, kind of more just the knife fight. Uh, and Colonel Osager has obviously pushed the the standoff munitions, so like the AGR-20 system for the actually implementing PR. So basically with the reduction in aircraft being in the inventory essentially like not going to help a10s uh the idea would be to have that mixed fleet of essentially like helicopters with um 
more standoff munitions to basically fill that gap, not necessarily replace it, but um, have that kind of like intermediary between the A-10 and R-50 Hill. Sure. Uh, well, Sack's a good friend. He's a smart guy. I think those are super interesting ideas. I think one, the survivability thing is tough and, and the PIE, whatever that thing is without having to go over there. So if you have a good enough sensor, yeah, maybe so. That'd be great. And if you could self-rescort with that, that'd be awesome. And send in a maybe a slick bird to get them or whatever as you do that in the overhead. But I think the perennial issue for CSAR is that you always have to solve the human-level survivor problem meaning that it only takes a single enemy to survive all this seed and deed when you get to the zone that can just still survive in a ditch and pop up and therefore like our close-in shooting training is important because to be able to suppress them and just get out of there is so critical and no matter what you can hit that threat with that problem that problem will always exist you can't get every single human enemy on the ground and it takes just one tricky person with a good weapon to be brave enough to just play dare with you and that's really what we employed um weapons from hovers a few times in that mckay mission and that's a huge counter risk right because you're static but the benefit is you can you have to basically gamble that you're going to survive the point of origin. So the first look at the point of origin, but the second you see it, you can suppress or destroy it. Um, and without good suppressive weapons, that mission would have been like a no-go for sure. Yeah, I'm a pretty big fan of the Gao too. Ugh, just <laughs> that's, that's me personally. I uh, got actually see them fire for the first time like four years the other day and it was i was like oh yeah these are awesome so um i think there's a bit of a mind shift um going yeah we've been so hard into the 50 cal for the last four years um but the the miniguns started to come back yeah but i i you know i think the most important thing is to have an open mind and be willing to test stuff and challenge assumptions and be like Oh, interesting. Well, let's go, let's go try this and see what it does. Right. Or get the CTF to do something with it or wick or whatever, and then tell us how it worked. Right. And yeah, then develop. not be wedded to a tactic because it's fun or it looks cool. <laughs> right. And if the solution is, you know, there's a, you know, a fast river boat that can get the guy like send that, that's fine. Yeah. You know, launch us too, maybe as a backup, but just integrated solution and with our tactics and, and weapons and stuff, open mind, you know, let's see what the data is, let and, oh man, well, let's, let's adopt it into our tactics then. Yeah, because kind of the jack of all trades, master of none um, mentality almost, but the, it, it, the biggest thing I like to try to stress is that you're kind of, what's the actual saying? So you develop you always are fighting for the next war so like your tactics whatever they're on the last war are probably not going to work for the next one so you always have to like think ahead out of that out of the box to 
be able to fight for that next war. Um, and then whatever that is, uh, I'm hoping for like a nice par like paradise place, but uh, deserts are fine, I guess. But <laughs> um, so just well, try to. I'm I'm hoping for our deterrent power to just keep doing a pretty good job, so that yeah. they're like. MCO is scary stuff, right? Yeah, that stuff for happens, sure. and um, life as you know it has changed, probably, right? Like the whole yeah, whole fighting. World's different. Yeah, that's a good point. We haven't been into that. Uh, like that. We haven't been in the MCO environment, so we've been in the coins to the combative of insurgents operations for the last wow, 20, 20 years now. 19 years? Yeah, so I yeah. had cadets that were freshmen that were born after 9-11. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. wild. Yeah, that's cool. Could <laughs> not culturally relate with pop culture with those youths. Yeah, because we're so good at coin now that the, yeah, the MCO fight or the conventional fight would be such a slap in the face. I think it would take a lot of good people to ultimately get us to where we need to be for that. And luckily we do have a lot of those people in the community now pushing for a lot of those new techniques and tax techniques and procedures, but just a different mindset, I think. Well, not intuitively that 2011 mission would be in a bit under those circumstances because so much risk was assumed and we wouldn't have a permissive environment to hang out like that. Right. Yeah. And you, need to take less risk because with damage to your own aircraft because like you can't if you go down there you just put an exponent on the problem again right mm -hmm. um but you know you you're always fighting your last wars problems with your tactics even if you're trying to change them yeah. and then it just takes luck and skill and being adaptive to survive your mistakes enough to then to make less mistakes and get enough luck to be better than your enemy and then readapt to the new situation. Cause I don't think you're ever going to guess what the next thing is too closely. Yeah. It's, it's good, good discussion for sure. Cause, um, I feel like that's kind of where we're at. We're kind of this low player between the ISIS fight and then with the transition, um, all the politics so i think it in the next 10 years should be pretty interesting to see where it goes um for our community and the u.s military in general but so that's about uh just under an hour there uh sweet lou um cool so i have five percent left on my laptop battery. Uh, perfect. perfect so we, I, I knew that i i actually knew that so <laughs> um so yeah thanks for coming on and talk to me man uh, about the history and your your mission in 2011 and then some some extra stuff at the end there about like the current and future events for csar uh and like you said if you want to come back on for uh another show just let me know i'll try to get you on maybe we'll fix a little bit of the this maybe we'll use zoom next time instead of skype yeah. but uh it was great talking to you man good seeing you for the first time like five years yeah for a long time it's just good luck at ipug that's awesome thanks for having me on i think this is a cool idea and we have so many characters in our community and such a rich history that yeah. i think like you could just have an awesome podcast with just you know totally different guests every week that have or every month or whatever super mm -hmm. cool stories so good luck man yeah 
Thanks. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, if you do have an idea for the podcast, uh, hit me up on Instagram, at uh, Jaren or uh, I'll get you, I'll talk to you about this thing. So hit the subscribe button.